0: If you have a, a Bible with you, please open it to John chapter 6, and shortly we'll be reading the last bit of that chapter, verses 60 through 71. With all the uh, the going on around here lately as we are speaking. Uh, preparing even in a, in a handful of minutes to go and to discuss the selling of our property and to think through what the future of uh, our, our church is going to be. I, I thought it would be a good idea as we have experienced some and we would like to experience more growth, uh, that I would go and find out how to best facilitate that. And so uh, I found out this week that there was something called the Internet, so I went there and I found a whole bunch of really helpful things. Um, Rick Warren, who is the pastor of um, one of the largest churches in in our country, Saddleback out in California. Uh, has about 20,000 members. Uh, if you know Rick Warren, uh, you know him from all of his purpose-driven books. Uh, he's got Purpose Driven Life, Purpose Driven Church. I think he's down to like Purpose Driven Cooking or something like that. He uh, he has numerous books that are purpose-driven. Uh, my wife and I used to joke that we, we would hear this so much, we, we used to call him Porpoise Driven and make jokes about dolphins and stuff like that. But he he became famous off of these books and uh, he, is, he is actually a very good author. Uh, online, I found that he gives a Eight things to think through if we're going to prepare for growth. These are those eight things. These are not the eight points of the sermon, so you're going to have to wait for that. Uh, he said, first, you need to decide that you really, really want to grow. He said that, that people, if they, they want to experience growth in a church, have to buy into that growth. and um, They've got to be able to put aside their own personal preferences and traditions in order to, to actually facilitate growth. He said that you've got to worry and think through changing the role of a pastor. The Smaller churches can have pastors who oversee everything, but as churches grow, and certainly of a church that has 20,000 members. He cannot be a pastor over all of those people. He needs to pastor elders who are pastors over pastors and pastors over pastors on down to the the everyday sort of folks in the pews. We need to mobilize our members for ministry. You guys are going to have to do the ministry. That's right. He says go to multiple services. The more services you have, the more options people have to come. He says multiply your staff and you've got to think through having people in place who can do certain tasks and do them well if you're going to grow. Have big days, he says. Have, have parties, have events where people can come and enjoy fellowship with you. He says have multiple cells so that, that people can still feel like they are in leadership in a church that's that large and even expand your facility As the last one. Make sure that you have room to grow. That's not all bad and certainly... There's a lot of truth in what he says. And he would know. I mean, some of these are just absolutely practical things if we're going to grow. This is what we have to be concerned about. The problem, of course, is that this is the equivalent of saying that you want a BLT and getting absolutely no bacon. It is the equivalent of having a car with no gas. It is the equivalent of having a library without books. It is the equivalent of having the substance and the form without anything in the center. What you need to grow a church a church not an organization not an elk's club what you need to grow the church is at the core the gospel something that is left off of this list now perhaps rick in his wisdom thought these are pastors reading this they they should have the gospel down maybe he just assumed that the gospel was present I, i've read enough of his books and i don't agree with everything but but he certainly is gospel and what he he proclaims and what he says. I don't necessarily agree with all of his means and methods, but I have no doubt that the man knows the gospel and he preaches the gospel. So perhaps it is just an oversight by him, but I think it is a major oversight. To think that any sort of advice can go out to pastors about how to grow their church without saying, first, foremost, above everything else, preach the word of God is a huge gaping mistake. So, What do churches often do? People are very quick to jettison the gospel when they are worried about church growth. Warren clearly thinks that these are the things that people might forget to do. I don't think that. I think that when people are trying to grow the church, the first and foremost thing that they forget is the gospel. They forget to rightly preach the gospel. And they do that because the gospel comes with problems. The gospel comes with offense. The gospel comes with difficulties. And they are rampant throughout the gospel. In order to get to the good news, which is what gospel means, we must, we must embrace the bad. There are difficulties in the gospel that we simply cannot forego, sweep aside, or disown. One of the reasons why we are careful here to not be too seeker-sensitive although we want to be seeker-sensitive, but we're not driven by people who are out in the world looking for God when we gather together here, is because it is a very, very slippery slope. It can, at its best, be helpful to keep the focus on sending out the gospel, and I think at its best, it does that well. At its worst, however, and it happens often, at its worst, it diminishes the gospel for the wants and the desires of growth. We are led to frame what we do not in terms of biblical worship, but how we can gather more seekers. It is an incredibly dangerous thing to lose the gospel for the growth of a organization. So we should be sensitive to people are coming in, who don't necessarily know the gospel, but we can never, because of that, lose sight of the gospel. And that means that we can't lose sight of the difficulties of the gospel. What must the gospel be? That's what we are going to think through today as we turn then to John chapter 6. We'll begin reading in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, that is the words that Jesus has said from verse 25 and on, when many of his disciples heard it, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of our God. First, if we are to keep the good news, we must be reminded that the good news must be offensive. It must be offensive. When we talk about the fall, when we talk about what has happened to the world around us, we do not simply want to talk about the fall as though what the fall has done is placed humanity in sort of a bad situation. It's placed us in a, in a difficult situation where now we have hurricanes and now we have tornadoes and now we have frail bodies and now we are broken people. That is not what the definition of the fall is meant to be. When we talk about the fall, it's not that we've been put in a bad situation. It means that we are sinners, that we are are fallen, not just in general, but before God. And in the final analysis, we have rejected his sovereign rule over us and his authority before us. Therefore, because we have done this, we are changed. We don't know how to rightly address anything around us. We don't know how to rightly think of ourselves. We don't know how to rightly consider our neighbors or our coworkers or our families. We don't know how rightly to handle creation, and we certainly don't know how to rightly approach and consider God. So the problem is, as soon as good news begins to speak to these areas of our lives, it is certain to poke at some long-cherished sins that we hold very, very dear. What are the people saying here? What are the disciples saying when they say, this is a hard saying? They don't mean simply something like, this is difficult, that Jesus' words here are hard to comprehend or to understand. It's not hard to understand like free-form poetry or like Heidegger's philosophy or like every single sentence that Ann Voskamp has ever put down to paper, if you know who she is. It doesn't mean difficult to understand. What it means is it's hard to listen to. It's like nails on a chalkboard. It is offensive to them. They don't want to hear somebody say what Jesus has been saying to them. It brings up the question of what they find offensive. I doubt very highly that what they find offensive is just verse 52 through verse 59 and Jesus telling them that they need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. As much as we, looking at these words as long away from them as we are, would be unlikely to take them literally as we talked about last week, people who are standing there in front of him are very unlikely to take those words literally. I think that they understood well that he was talking in metaphor because that is a continuation of a conversation that happened way back in verse 25 and has continued to this point. No, what they have offense of is what Jesus is proclaiming himself to be in total. It is Jesus' own authority to proclaim that he is the bread of life, to proclaim that it is him that they must believe in, not, not just God. He says, you must believe in me. This is the work of God, that you would believe in him whom God has sent to the world. I am the bread of life. I am not only greater than Moses, I am more important than him. You don't come to me simply to get the good things. I am the good thing that God has given to you. They find this incredibly offensive because they find that this man is claiming to be everything that we need. Now, they they come to Jesus for help, no doubt. Rome is big and strong and powerful, and if they're going to have a Messiah, better one that can do miracles than one that just has military knowledge. And yes, they are indeed hungry as well. But they are not, not going to have their lives defined by this carpenter's son whose mom and dad they know and brothers and sisters they've met. But isn't this how all of us feel? We all feel at some level like we can do this stuff on our own. And we feel frankly like Jesus claiming that all of our lives are to be bent and molded around him. That he calls us not to a weak belief, but a strong belief. He calls us to radical obedience. He says, you are to take up your cross and follow me. That is not the kind of call that we find easy to accept. That is quite offensive because we have good things that we want to do in our lives. And Jesus says, no, you can't put your hand to the plow and look back. You want to bury the dead? You go and bury the dead. But you should leave them and follow me. We oftentimes do just speak of being broken or having a fallen nature. And frankly, because of that, we try not to step on toes. We try not to pinpoint sins in people's lives because we don't want to drive them away. We don't want to to offend them. We don't want to be considered judgmental. And so we keep those sins to ourselves. We know that they exist in their lives. We know this in Christians' lives as well. We know that they have sin in their lives. But we refuse to say it because we are worried that if we confront them with the offense of sin, that we might drive them out. And so we weaken everything we can in order to find common ground. I read just this morning, and now I'm going off notes, so this could be dangerous. I read just this morning that there was a church, an Anglican church in England who in trying to draw up community with the people around them, invited Muslims into their sanctuary to pray and covered up the cross and, they had pictures of Jesus, which they shouldn't have had, but they covered up the cross and other things in order to keep it as non-offensive as they can. Listen, that is a complete and total failure You are no longer a church. You are defunct. You have failed in that. But we fail no less than that when we try to cover up the cross by making people's sin seem like it isn't a major, major issue. We try to minimize sin in people's lives, to think that it doesn't matter, that it's not a big deal. But if Jesus claims, friends, that it's a big deal, my goodness, it is a big deal. And if you think that confronting them in their sin is driving them away, you will lose them anyways because if they're never confronted in their sins, Jesus will never have them. The good news must be offensive. It doesn't matter if it's ultimately a problem with sin in terms of sex or in terms of money or about how you're spending your time in your retirement or in your life, about your your relationship with your family or how you worship God or your role in life. All of these things come under the authority and the proclamation of the gospel in Jesus Christ. He has something to say about all of those things. And if we are unwilling to talk to people about that, to confront people with their sin, we've lost the gospel. The cross is difficult and offensive. We're not just saying that Jesus did this for a moral example. We're saying that Jesus did this in replacement of you and I. That this is the punishment that we deserved. That God is angry with you enough to crush you. That God is angry enough to burn you in hell forever because of your sin. He isn't angry because you are a beautiful And glorious little flower that he is jealous of. He is angry with you because your sin makes you a wretched beast before him who is worthy only, only of destruction. And yet in his mercy, he has withheld that destruction from you and handed it over to his son. That is offensive. It is offensive to our sensibilities because we think that we have worth. It is offensive to our sensibilities because we think that we have value. It's offensive because we think that we are good, and the gospel proclaims that you simply are not. To minimize that is to lose the gospel. Friends, let us never shrink back from calling sin, sin, Do not shrink back from declaring that Jesus alone is to be honored with all of our lives, all of our time, all of our money, all of our actions. Every single thing we eat and drink, whatever we do, we ought to do it for the glory of God. Do not shrink back from a gospel that offends, for it must. Secondly, the good news must be offensive and it must be God-affirmed. If This gospel is going to offend and it has to offend. How in the world will people come? Ultimately, we want people to believe in Jesus Christ. Our goal in being offensive is not to drive them away, but to be honest and truthful with them. But if that's true, and if it is offensive, and I have no doubt that it is, how are we supposed to grow the church? Isn't this what most of the seeker-sensitive stuff is really about? We, We don't want to put up offenses to keep people out of the church. We want them to be able to come in. We want to put away man-driven obstacles before men and women so that they can come to the Gospels. But if we put wrong commandments in place, if we put wrong sentiments in place, and we put wrong practices in place, they should be gone. They should be jettisoned. We have no problem with that. But we cannot confuse those things with the speaking of the offense of the cross. So Jesus asks his people a question. He says, what if, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? I have no doubt that that is sort of an oblique reference. Again, back to Daniel chapter 7. What if, as in Daniel 7, you see the holy God sitting on his throne and you see a man of all the creatures of God, you see a man approaching him and God were to give him power and dominion and a kingdom. If you were to see that, then would you buy into my authority? Then would you buy into the words that I am speaking to you? Would you say that he must be right and he must be true because God is giving him all this? If you saw that, would you buy into it? I think the obvious answer from this verse or these verses is no. He turns around and he says, the flesh is no help at all. You're seeing it might make you think that this Jesus is filled with glory and power, might make you think that he is filled with majesty and he is strong, but that won't lead you to not rejecting his authority over you. That is the nature of sin. No amount of miracle done before you, no amount of Christ's visible presence, if he were to show up here in our very midst, would lead some of you in your own flesh to trust and believe in him. What about words? Jesus turns around and says, I have spoken to you words that are spirit and life. I have spoken them. Listen, when I, when I speak, me myself, I am at best a very distant echo of Jesus. I stand across the canyon and simply echo his words back to you. But because I'm sinful, because we are sinful as a people, that, that sort of echo that comes back to us is it's diffused, it's distorted, it's impure. It's, it's like that because I'm sinful and I sometimes take words out of context or I apply things poorly. Sometimes it's because of all the ambient noise that's around us. You are so worried about everything else in life that you're not hearing what I say correctly. But it's simply a, an echo of what happens. But Jesus is standing in front of these people with the undiluted, undistilled, unpolluted words of the immortal God And he says, you don't believe me. Do we honestly think that we can formulate the right words to get people to believe? That if maybe we take out the offense, that people will come to know and entrust themselves to Jesus when Jesus himself couldn't do that. No. If it's going to be overcome, it has to be overcome by God. God must affirm the gospel to us. The Spirit must give life. He says, it is the Spirit that gives life. And he turns around and he says, again, the Father must draw. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Notice the beautiful picture of the triune God working here. You have to come to Jesus because in Jesus and in Jesus alone do you have your salvation. But it is the Spirit that gives life and it is the Father that draws without the Spirit of God working, without the Father drawing, there is no one who will come. And this is precisely why we can do exactly what Jesus has called us to do and preach both faith and repentance. And we can call people out on their sins and we can take them to the Word of God. So long as we preach the Word of God, we can take them to it and we can say, this is a sin. You must give this up in order to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You cannot run from that. And we can do so thinking that they might actually believe in what we're saying because it is God who draws them. We don't have to take down the offense of the gospel. If they are offended because of you, woe to you. If they are offended because of the gospel, woe to them. We believe that the Father will draw people in. And amazingly, Jesus knew this from the start. He knew He knew that this great cloud of people who were around him here as he started his ministry and it started getting traction, he knew that they would leave. He is aware of the difficulty. He knows their hearts and he knows that the Father has not drawn them. So friends, because it is a work of God to overcome this offense, preach the gospel. Do the work of a sower. The famous parable that Jesus first gave. He says there's a, a man who's going to go out and he's going to sow some seed and that seed's going to fall on all different kinds of dirt. It's going to fall on hard dirt and the birds are going to come and they're going to pick it away. It's going to fall on good dirt that has rock underneath. It's going to grow up quickly, but in the heat of the day, it's going to be scorched and it's going to fall away. Some, some of it's going to grow on, on good dirt as well, but there's thorns and there's thistles there and, and it's just never going to make it, but there's some that falls on really good dirt. And that really good dirt is able to nourish, it is able to grow that 30, 60, and 100-fold. The point of that is that you sow the seed. You have no idea where the dirt's going to fall. You don't know if somebody has, is so hard in their heart that God is going to allow Satan to take that word away or if the cares and the persecutions of the world are going to rip them up, root and all. We can't control the dirt but we simply pray that God has tilled the soil before we get there. So we sow, and we sow, and we sow, knowing that God draws people. The good news is offensive, but the good news must therefore be God-affirmed. Thirdly, the good news must also be confessed. It must be confessed. It's not enough just to preach the good news, and it certainly is not enough just to have it heard by people who are sitting in the pews. It's interesting to me, that Jesus doesn't track these people down. Jesus doesn't, when they leave, say, "Eh, eh, eh." okay, so maybe I was a little bit forward with the whole eat my flesh thing, okay? So let's, well, I'll turn that down from an 11 to like a 6, okay? You need to eat it as bread, it's a metaphor. He, he He doesn't try to back down anything that he said. Instead, what he does is he challenges them as though they shouldn't be offended by it, and then he turns to his disciples and says, the door is there. If you want to go, go. Now, we are not to do that for the simple reason that we don't know men's hearts. I, I have plenty of people who have rejected the gospel in front of me. That is likely because I have offended them more than the gospel has offended them. It is likely because my words weren't good and pure and true. Jesus has none of those problems. When they reject what Jesus says, they are rejecting him. And that is the rejection of the gospel. Jesus understands that they are gone. He knows what they are. This is not a word for how we should act like Jesus, other than the fact that if we continue to proclaim the gospel and they are clearly offended by the gospel, then we can tell them, we have no other words for you. We only have the gospel for you. But friend, for you and for me, this is the word of Jesus to us. This is the gospel. There is no other gospel. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You want to try door B? You want to try door C? You are my guest to do so. But behind them lies only tragedy and devastation. I am the door. But even as, even as Jesus is saying this, Peter turns around and responds for everyone else. This is very, very similar to what we get in Matthew 16, 16, when Peter is asked, what do people say of me by Jesus? And then he says, what do you say of me? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God a beautiful confession. Peter says, where are we going to go? She says, you want to leave? Go. And Peter responds, where are we going to go? Who else is going to give us words of life? Friend, where else will you go for words like this? Where else will you go for words that are said to you, that call you out on everything that you know is wrong with you, And yet still, by that same person, is willing to die for you to make it right again. Where will you go where you can get God's perspective on who you are and what you've done? Who else has words of eternal life? Who else but the Son of God could offer you such a thing? Who else but Jesus can take sinful, wretched people, forgive them, die for them, and then make them brothers and sisters in the Lord? Where else can you go for a message that we can call truly, truly good news? And Peter says, there is no place else. Where where else am I going to go? He says, you are the Holy One of God. Jesus was the one who was set aside by God. I don't think that it's necessarily a reference to this, but I couldn't help but think of the end of the, the book of Isaiah, beginning in Isaiah 40 and going almost all the way through it, but specifically in 42 up through chapter 53, that very famous chapter, when Isaiah continually talks about one person set aside who is going to come and make everything right for God. He is the chosen one. He continually is called the servant. Holy one simply means that he is set aside for a purpose, like a holy utensil in the tabernacle. He was set aside for this purpose. This is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 42. This is my servant, I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. He will not grow weak or be discouraged until he has established justice on earth. The coasts and the islands will wait for his instruction. How does he do that? This, this grand servant of God who is coming to a people who God has been promising for 40 chapters are about to be cut off. This one servant is going to make it all all right. He is going to bring justice and God's justice to the earth, but how will he do that? Although there are intervening chapters, there's no doubt in my mind that he will do that because of what Isaiah says in Isaiah 52 beginning in verse 13. See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised up and lifted up and greatly exalted. How, Isaiah? How will he be raised up and lifted up and greatly exalted? Just as many as were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man and his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will see what had not been told them, and they will understand what they had not heard. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone who turned people away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness, and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep, We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Christ, the servant of God, brings God's justice through the cross, and only through the cross. This is what Peter is confessing, at least in part, when he confesses him as the Holy One of God. When we rightly confess Jesus Christ, we rightly confess him as the servant chosen by God set apart to take away our sins, those sins that are so offensive both to us and to God. Jesus has taken them away. And so because he is the servant, he is the Holy One of God, we listen to him and to him alone. We entrust our whole understanding to him. Reality is what he says it is. We are who he says we are. We relate to our neighbors, to our co-workers. We relate to our enemies. We relate to creation. We relate to God Himself the way He tells us we must relate to God. This is the good confession. This is the confession of all Christian churches that Jesus Christ is the servant of God, the Holy One of God, who makes us right with God. This is the only one who has the words of life. So we listen and we believe. And we confess. Fourthly, the good news must be achieved. The good news is not just confessions, it's not just words, but it is something that has been done in history. So Jesus, to understand, to show that he understands his mission well, and even that he understands the suffering that has been presented to him, he draws his disciples' attention to the fact that he himself has chosen them He says, did I not choose you, the 12? I was the one who chose you. I was the one who picked you out. And yet you need to understand something. Even amongst you 12, there is a devil. Jesus knew this, even as John has said up in verse 64, he knew from the beginning who were who it was that would not believe and who it was that would betray him. He knew when he picked Judas exactly what Judas was. Judas wasn't a flyer. Judas wasn't a project that he was hoping would turn out. But by this time, he kind of knows Judas ain't going to make it. He knew when he chose Judas that Judas was going to do exactly what he was going to do. In order to make sure and certain that he would be crucified, he took on one who would betray him in the end. Because he knew that the good news was not just a proclamation. The good news had to actually be achieved in flesh and blood on the earth. So the good news is not just something that we proclaim. It's not just encouraging words or good thoughts. It's not something simply to carry with you throughout the difficulties of life. It's not simply a philosophy that is meant to give a semblance of mental health, nor is it practical principles for how to live better marriages and finances and homes and all the other stuff. It is a declaration of what has happened in history. It has been achieved. Something objective has happened. Jesus Christ has come as God eternal to be enclothed in flesh and to be born of a virgin. He lived a perfect and sinless life, and he truly died. He was crucified, and his life was taken from him on that cross as much as he laid it down, only to take it back up again three days later as he rose from the dead conquering sin, conquering the grave, conquering the tomb. These things have happened. Your salvation has been achieved. It's not simply nice words that we can hang on to, as though it's a fairy tale that we believe in to pacify ourselves in the deep dark night. The help that we need is not just mental, it's not philosophical, it's not practical, and friends, it is not just spiritual. It happened in flesh and blood. We are not just frail creatures with emotional problems. We're not just in need of getting along in life with one another. We don't just need and want principles for life. We don't just long for a sense of home. We don't just want to understand our place in this big, old, empty universe. We don't just want to see a good example of a nice person. We need salvation from our sins. We need one to die in our place. We need one who can grant us forgiveness and eternal life forever. We need Jesus. Not as a spirit guide, not as an example, but as a man who lived and died and rose again. Praise God, for that is precisely what we have been given. Listen. Jesus is worth every ounce of everything everything that you have all of your glory all of your praise all of your honor he is worthy of every ounce of authority and dominion that he has been given every voice that is raised in praise to him has never been raised wrongly he is all of this and yet he loves us who reject him, who have hated him, who would have stood by and gladly seen him crucified. Even if we didn't put the nails in his hands, we certainly would not have stopped it. And he loves sinners who are wretched, ugly, and disgusting before him, for our sin has made us so. And yet, even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, where else will you go for such words? Where else? Will you go to find such a great salvation? Believe and come to know the Holy One of God. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you will draw those who do not know you this morning. We pray that you will give to Christ the inheritance that he has rightfully won through the obedience and sacrifice that he has made before you. Let the offense of the cross become its glory for us that our sins are dealt with, that we can rely on nothing but the blood and the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let our confession be praised to you and let your glory grow in the world until it is filled with your worship. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. Amen.